You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. This weekend we have our bishop. You may not have met Bishop Todd. Um, We have a bishop in our diocese of churches for the sake of others. He's in Costa Mesa. He flew all the way out to Austin, Texas to be with us because I think we're his favorite church, probably. Probably, yeah. Um, I met Bishop Todd, if I can give a quick uh, anecdote here. I met Bishop Todd when I was coming out of seminary, realizing I was like, I think Anglican, whatever that means, as Michelle says. And I sat down with Bishop Todd and, and asked, I told him my whole story as if it was like evangelicals coming out into this like Catholic tradition that's evangelical as well and this Anglican thing, like he had never heard it before. And he looked at me and he said, oh yeah, we, I see a lot of your type. And Bishop Todd has actually caught a lot of us who are falling out of traditions that uh, are not Anglican and coming into this beautiful tradition and, and wondering how does this tradition not only transform our life but change the world? How is this tradition on mission in the world? And you all have had a taste a little bit of that, thanks to Bishop Todd so long ago, um, saying, you know what, let's do this together and, and welcoming in, me into his diocese. So that was like, what, nine years ago, 10 years ago? It was a long time. I know you were still surfing in Santa Cruz. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he knows. Anyways, so um, uh, I've asked the bishop to come and speak. He's going to talk to us a little bit about Mark. Um, If you, uh, I think that's all the context I need to give, right? Yeah, that's good. Let's just say Mark and then go for it. Bishop Todd, everybody. Let's give him a round of applause. Yeah, now you're unmuted. Check test. There we go. Hi, everybody. I am very much looking forward to being with you. I love retreats. I'm going to retreat some tomorrow in between my, uh, my responsibilities. It's one of the greatest treasures we can ever have is to stop and notice God's work in our life and notice what he's up to in the world and notice what he's up to in the church. And so it's, a, it's really a great treasure and it's my, uh, my pleasure to try to lead you in this. So tonight we're just going to have a... Uh, a, a quick sort of introduction into where we're going on the weekend. We have a couple times tomorrow and then on Sunday morning, but I know it's Friday night and it's late and a lot of you hassled I-35. You don't have anything like I-405 here, but 35 is close. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's getting there. And so we're not, gonna, we're not gonna keep you late here tonight. But what I want you to do tonight, as we said to... Um, as we begin to make ourselves conscious of Jesus and his work, is I want you to begin to wonder with me, do you suppose Jesus was a conscious being? I mean, so often, you know, he kind of just gets reduced to his blood, right? Because we tend to think that That which is crucial about Christianity is that we've sinned and our sins need to be forgiven. Why? So that when we die, we can go to heaven. And that tends to be the kind of Christian story. And in that, you actually don't need Jesus to be very conscious. Um, My friend and mentor, Dallas Willard, said that when you think of Jesus that way, when you think of him as just sort of a vial of blood, it turns people into vampire Christians. You know, where you say, well, I'll take a little bit of your blood because I don't want to go to hell when I die, but I really don't have much intention towards you otherwise. 
And often it's because we don't know what to actually think of him. You know, we, it's almost like we picture him walking around in a waif-like sort of state, you know, with a, a white bathrobe on and maybe a powder blue beauty sash, you know, that says, I'm the Lord or something, you know, and just sort of wandering the beaches of Palestine and saying all these disassociated things that don't seem to have any coherence. One could wonder, did the things that Jesus say correspond to any important reality? Or you might want to think this, was he smart? Because we have a tendency to read these ancient words from these ancient contexts, us being these highly, um, you know, advanced people who now have social media and you know, the New York Times on our phone and any other global newspaper right here on this tiny little thing. So we kind of feel we're advanced. But when Jesus came into public, as we heard read tonight, and said, this is what the gospel is, like, well, like, well, like what are we to make of that? Um, a few weeks ago, I went home and my wife, Debbie, was kind of sunburned, not bad, but I could just tell she'd been out in the sun, and she was talking about how really tired she was, and I said, well, like, why? What'd you do today? And she said, oh, I was at the Apple store all day with Jonathan, that's our son, because I guess there's a new iPhone 10 out that does, what is it, 10S, can anybody tell me what is it? There's some sort of new iPhone out, and so Jonathan had to have the, you know, the newest, latest greatest thing, when I, I just want you to think about what that means. When somebody like Apple says, there's a new iPhone out, and it will do X, Y, Z four times faster. No one doubts it. Why? Because we attribute intelligence to these technology companies. Now, we don't think they're perfect, but we intuitively Trust that when they say a product will do something, it'll do it. Enough that we'll go wait in the sun and stand in long lines to get it. But it turns out in Christianity that whatever one thinks salvation is determines what you think discipleship is and determines what you think Christianity is. Because we don't tend to mostly be um, kind of thinking beings. We tend to be more affective. We tend to be more intuitive. We tend to, in a sense, operate out of our guts. Now, obviously, we have intellect. We have cognition. We do think about the things. But typically, when it comes to just reacting, most of life we do like we do driving. When was the last time you were conscious of the brake pedal? Deeply conscious. Of course you're not. You just drive. You know, who's deeply conscious of the accelerator pedal? Well, you're not, you know, occasionally maybe, but for the most part, you, you just drive. And that's the way we live life, typically out of deep intuitions. And I want to suggest that one of the deep intuitions about Jesus and one of the reasons that it makes discipleship to him not intuitive is that our intuitions about him don't grant him that he's actually stunningly brilliant. 
and that he has the best information possible on every aspect of what it means to be human. So I like to illustrate this sort of intentional way or this intuitive way, I mean, of the way we live life. Have you heard those dopey stories where there's, you know, four guys in a little airplane and there's only three parachutes and, you know, the plane? Have you heard these dopey stories? Okay, here's one. Here's, you know, the only thing worse than dad jokes? <laughs> Pastor jokes. So here, here's just one of those dopey stories that I think illustrates what I'm talking about. So, if, you know, four guys in an airplane, little airplane, little four-seater airplane. <clears throat> there's only three parachutes. So here's the four guys. There's a young pilot who's, I think, like 37 years old, had four little kids at home. Uh, there was a young boy of about 12. There was a man who was reputed to be like the smartest guy in the world. I can't remember exactly what he did, but he somehow like, he networked most of the global banking systems together. You know, I don't know, he's just one of those, you know, like smartest guy in the world. And then there was an old retired priest. Well, the plane starts going down. Four guys, only three parachutes. The young pilot grabs one of the parachutes and said, man, it's really important that I get out of here. If I don't live, if I die, my wife will kill me. You know, I got these little kids at home. So he grabs one of the parachutes, says, I got to live, and he jumps. Well, smartest guy in the world says, stands up and says, hey, look, I'm the smartest guy in the world. The whole banking system, global banking system depends on me. Grabs one of the parachutes, and he jumps. Well, that just leaves in the back this old, old retired priest and this young boy of about 12. And the old priest looks at the young boy and says, you know, son, I think I've lived a really good long life. I feel like I've done whatever God asked me to do. I'm really ready to go home. You take that last parachute and jump. And the young boy looks at the old reverend and says, ah, relax, reverend. Smartest guy in the world just jumped out with my backpack. <laughs> so, so, so you see... What one intuits <laughs> is actually very powerful. <laughs> and in the moment, we tend to act out of those sort of deeply held intuitions. And so now this will help you wonder, why is it that I find it really hard to turn the other cheek when someone has just slapped me? Well, because it doesn't seem intelligent. There's nothing intuitive about that. There is not one thing intuitive about that. Or love your enemies. You know, what, you know, what we evangelicals tend to do with these things is we, we, we make plaques. So like in our kitchen, we might have a plaque that says, love your enemies, you know. Like, like, you know, like when we hear these deep, heavy things and we don't know what else to do with them, a bumper sticker, a plaque, maybe put it in a Christian song, you know, and so we like sing about it or look at it on a plaque or something, but they're so completely counterintuitive and it's because they come from Jesus's view of reality. They come from Jesus's view of what's real. And so now I want you to just picture him coming into public for the first time. I mean, there was a time, I'm old enough to remember, when Apple came out with their first computer. And it was like, whoa. Remember, I think they had weird, they were like weird colors, like turquoise, or am I right? Am I remembering right? And it was like, wow, what is this? And, and so when they went public, they had everybody's attention. And what I want to help us do this weekend is we just slow ourselves down and we pray together and we sing together and we eat together and we have fun together is to just wonder, okay, if Jesus was conscious, to what was he conscious? 
What did he think the Father was doing in and through him? Why did he say the things he said? What's the basis for discipleship, for spiritual formation? What's its telos? What's its end? To what is it attached? What's the beginning? Where are we in the middle of this story? Because as I said, it turns out that how one understands salvation turns out to be the key to what one makes of discipleship or of spiritual formation. So for instance, I came to Christ in the 70s. And that was the middle of the Jesus movement. And, and uh, there was all kinds of Jesus trinkets. There, you know, we had Jesus buttons. We had Jesus license plate frames. We had Jesus hats. I mean, we had Jesus everywhere. So one of the super popular bumper stickers in the mid-70s said this. I think it was the most Christian bumper sticker, most popular Christian bumper sticker ever. It said, Christians aren't perfect. And then in italics, what was the next word? Just forgiven. Now, that does sound intuitive, but now you just think what a truncated version of the gospel that is and ask yourself if that in any way fits the story Jesus was telling. Ask yourself if Jesus ever even hinted at such a thing, that Christians are just forgiven, that that's the whole story, that that's what's most fundamental about Christianity is the forgiveness of sins. Because that just raises the question, what does discipleship have to do with forgiveness? It's not intuitive, is it? What does forgiveness get linked to? Avoiding hell, right? And going to heaven. And I just want to help us see as we stop and just sort of playfully, you know, I, I, will, I will playfully push us like this a little bit. Because this, it's again, it's such a rare occasion to be able to stop and think together about these things. And so I'm just trying to find little provocative ways to, you know, help us get into this. So when I was a young evangelist, I used to um, stand on stages and do my best Billy Graham imitation and, you know, not like, and the buses will wait, not like that, but... But I, I don't know on how many stages I stood on as a young evangelist and said, now, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? Are you sure? What if you went out of here and got hit by a truck? Do you know where you would go? And I want to suggest to you tonight, just to get you thinking about this, three way better evangelistic questions. What if I said this? What if you knew for sure you were going to live tomorrow? What if you knew for absolutely certain you were going to live all next week? And you had complete certainty about living next year and the next decade and maybe decades to come. What if you knew for sure you were going to live? Who would you follow? From whom would you learn to do life? Because everybody's learning to do life from someone. I mean, Frank Sinatra actually didn't do it his way. And James Dean was not just a rebel without a cause, he was a rebel without a clue, right? There is no such thing as being a rebel and like, I'm just doing it my way. Everybody's learning to do life from somebody. The rebels learn to be rebels from the rebels. 
right? And the athletes learn from the athletes and the surfers learn from the surfers and on and on and on and on. So who would you follow? Like from whom, like who would be your master for life? Not who would get you into heaven. That's like, I get that. And by the way, I should say, I'm not in any way doubting the existence of heaven. I'm not doubting the existence of hell, not in the slightest. And I'm not doubting that we had sins that need to be forgiven. I'm just trying to locate that, that, that fact of forgiveness in a completely different story. Not one, that, not one that shrinks the story by avoiding heaven and hell, one that expands the story and includes heaven and hell in a different way that still makes room for discipleship or followership of Jesus being intuitive. Right? So, so the biblical motif is that you have a rabboni, a rabbi. And a rabbi has what the New Testament calls mathetes, students. Or it could be translated apprentices. I like apprentices better because that feels more embodied to me. Student can feel just like merely cognition. So it's very much like Jesus is the master in what? What was he, what had he mastered? What was it that he knew? In what way is he revelation? How is Hebrews true or how does, it, how, does, how does Hebrews work that says he's the exact representation of the Father? Why, when his original hearers hear, heard him, did they say of him, we have never heard anybody teach with this kind of clarity or authority? Or when he did deeds of power, they said, we've never seen anybody behave by, like this. Who is this man who dares to forgive sins? Like they were, they were apprehended by Jesus. They were stunned by him. It was as if they were, it was as if Jesus was a master electrician and they were apprentice electricians and they kept putting wires together that hurt each other and that hurt themselves, right? The Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. Ouch, that isn't, that isn't working. And the Herodians hated the Zealots, and the Zealots hated the Quietists, the Pietists. So Jesus came into a world in which the philosophy of Plato and, and Aristotle wasn't working, and religion wasn't working, and it's like humanity doesn't work, wasn't working. He came into this really brutal time for humanity and said, I am the master electrician. Well, I'm being the creator and all. Like, I kind of know which wires go together. And, and, and actually, it fits my father's design when we don't pass violence on. I know it seems intuitive to put those wires together, but when you slap somebody who slapped you, the violence just keeps going. And... You know, when you pat yourself on the back for not murdering someone today, but you, but you cussed eight people out, don't congratulate yourself for not murdering anybody. Become the kind of person for whom murder would never be an option. Form yourself in such a way that you would love your enemies. See, when, I mean, either Jesus just went around saying sort of goofy religious stuff 
that really doesn't correspond to any reality, doesn't really come out of any important narrative. It's just sort of goofy, religious, mystical sort of sayings. Or he was pointing to reality. Being, of course, the second person of the Trinity. So take, a, take just a simple idea like servanthood, and we're almost going to be done here. Just take a simple uh, um, idea of servanthood. One of my favorite, favorite passages, especially in the message in Don, John 13, you know, every week people like Sean and I, others stand up and say, on the night before he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ, what? What did he do? Took bread, broke it. Never had together. Yeah, I would think. But what happens just before that? On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus stood up from the table where he was sitting. He went to the back corner of the room. He got a basin of water, brought it over to the table, washed his disciples' feet, and said to them, and this is so beautiful, John gives us a window into Jesus' deepest soul. When John has Jesus saying, knowing where he would come from, the councils of the Holy Trinity. And knowing that he was going back there, Jesus got up and acted the part of a servant. Well, this raises the question, what does one do when one gets ultimate power? What does one do with power? You get to the C-suite at work, or you get to become fire captain or police chief or the supervisor on your floor at work. What does one do when one gets power? In this case, one, what does one do when one has ultimate power? And Jesus says, what you do with ultimate power is you serve your friends. And again, like, okay, maybe we make a song about that. But nobody really intends to live that way. I mean, we don't really take Jesus kind of serious on that level. Like, well, I don't know, what, like, what can that really mean? And this is why I started by saying, like, do you think Jesus is smart? Do you think he was self-conscious of what he was saying? And did he mean to say something that corresponded to any important reality? And if he did, then that merely raises the question, how do we get access to that? How might we position ourselves as his mathetes, his apprentice, linked to him as our master, as our rabbi, as the one who is not just our doorway to heaven, he is that, just not merely that. That's all I'm saying tonight. He's not merely that. That he's also our teacher for life. And, and this is the whole nature of the relationship between uh, a student and a master. So you think of these really powerful, authoritative things that Jesus said. Um, you think of the stunning, really decisive responses but here's why we come on a, treat, on a retreat like this. Because lying behind these sort of religious sayings, the visible world daily bludgeons us with its things and its noises. Sean took me to lunch today and we were standing in line at lunch and we were near the kitchen and you could just hear buzzers going off. It sounded like a fire alarm. All, and it apparently goes on all day. And I said to Sean, that seems like almost like employee abuse or something. Now, that's a radical example, but just think of the noise in your life. If you just stopped and thought for a second, the sources of noise in my life. 
all the events of my life. And if you sit and become conscious of them, you become aware of this pinching and pulling, pulling and these things that just sort of hammer away at our minds. But the spiritual world, and again, this is why we go on retreat. The spiritual world, instead of shouting and shoving, it whispers at us ever so gently. And in fact, God allows himself to be easily explained away. God rarely responds with fire from heaven. He seems to actually go away meekly without much protest. Now, one day he will enforce his will. But for now, at least, he cooperates with the desires and inclinations that make up our present character, our present desires, and our present loves. As James K. Smith has written, you are what you love. And what he means to say by that as a theological philosopher is that we are, in his argument, is that we are primarily affective people, that we're not brains on a stick. And so what Jamie's trying to contribute to this conversation, you are what you love, and you may not love what you think you do. Like we might say, you know, um, I really love that person. And then you find yourself lying to that person. And you then have to wonder, oh, maybe I don't really love her as much as I love my reputation. Oh, hmm. I wonder what that means. I wonder what worldview that comes from. Like what's happening in that moment? Because I really do feel genuinely in my heart. Like I don't feel like I'm lying to myself when I say I love him or I love her. But rubber meets the road, I find myself fudging the facts. I find myself giving a, a false report because, well, I, then I guess what I have to realize at that moment is that I sometimes don't love the things that I think I love. And this is why I want to say to you this weekend, most fundamentally, that Jesus is worthy of the highest esteem you could possibly give him. As a faithful master, for how to be a husband, a wife, a friend, a business owner, an employee, a retired person, a teenager. Th this is why he came amongst us. Yes, forgiveness of sins was necessary. Human beings were separated from God and reconciliation needed to happen and sin needed to be dealt with. Now, I know this is a really big thought for a late Friday night. Sorry to do this to you, but we'll be done after this. Ready? What if human beings had never sinned? Okay, got that? Would there have been any meaning for the second person of the Trinity? And if, if he's just that vial of blood who exists to forgive us of our sins, if sin had never happened, would God the Son have had any meaning? Would he have had any role in the cosmos? Did he know anything? And see, once you begin to think like that, you begin to see that, oh, like even if sin had never happened, we now know because of all these amazing telescopes that we now send out into the cosmos, we now know that the, that the, the creation is 
I, I don't know, I'm not a cosmologist, maybe someone in the room is, but like it's thousands of times, right? I forget now, it's tens, it's hundreds of thousands of times bigger than we thought it was. And it's ever expanding. And most of it's not even material. Well, what if Jesus was just the one who said, well, here, let me teach you, uh, Sean, you take this galaxy and uh, I'll just teach you what me and dad been up to. See, what I'm trying to get you to see is we have taken Jesus out of his story. We have reduced him to our needs such that he then loses any sense of, no, actually, I'm your Rabboni. I'm your master and you're my apprentice and I love you. We're, it's like children and their father and we're going to walk together and we're going to figure out what it means to people to be the people of the kingdom together and, and what it means to be the people of God. So that's what we're, we're going to explore together this weekend. Um, we'll come back tomorrow morning to just hit quickly what we, um, Jesus' announcement of the gospel. And then next, we're going to, um, uh, I, the way I've kind of titled these talks for myself anyway, is kind of just... Um, like sort of stopping this weekend to try to take Jesus serious or see Jesus from a different angle and just try to give you some big ideas that you can sit with. Like there's probably two or three ideas I've given you tonight that you could just sit with if you wanted and um, think about them, pray over them. Um, but tomorrow, so tomorrow will do that and then tomorrow we'll do, a, tomorrow in the morning, we'll do a bit more um, on the notion of what was the reality that Jesus was seeing What's the reality from which he acted and taught? You know, when he said things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, well, okay, well, what was his sense of that way? What was truth? Why did he have this certain manner of being in the world? That's what we'll do in the morning. Let's just stop for a moment of quiet. <clears throat> You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.